Welcome, listeners, to another Transformation Church Sermon Podcast. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. Good morning, everyone. How you guys doing? I, I know when I walked up here during church news, some of you guys were thinking, oh, Jamie's not back yet. It's okay. You're still supposed to be here, and I feel like I'm supposed to be here, and I've got 37 minutes to, to make you agree with me. Uh, so my name is Corey Wilson. I know a lot of you in this room. If I don't, uh, I've, I've been at our church for, I guess, about 15 years now and served in some different spots at one point on the board. And currently I serve out in the, uh, in the parking lot. So I'm the one forcing you to go the way you don't want to go. Uh, this morning I get a, an opportunity to serve right here. Um, and so I'm excited. We, we're, we're getting real close to the end of summer. Really close. I love summer at Transformation, but as, as it's ending in about a week, I'm thinking about how summer itself is ending. How many of you guys are more, you know, I'm, I'm glad I like the structure of the school season, and I, I like the, the cooler weather and pumpkin spice, bring it on. How many of you are looking forward to the next season? A couple of weirdos, cool. So I don't get it. I love it. I love summer. I love it's a little slower. It's less routine. I, I'll, I'll live with the heat, you know, just go jump in a pool. Um, but, but whether I love it or not, it's coming to an end. So we've had summer here at Transformation, and, and we've had a, an amazing student takeover day, and then Pastor Dylan and Pastor Justin gave two amazing messages. Go look at those if you haven't seen them on our website. I'll be speaking today and then next week as our five and five. It's one of our most popular uh, Sundays. So be here next week. Let me give you an overview of where we're going today, and, and as we go through, I'm going to warn you right now, there's a lot, there's a decent volume of scripture that we're going to go through, which isn't always the way I want to do it, but it's just where the Lord led me today. Uh, so I would encourage you, if you've got uh, uh, your notepad or your notes app or whatever, if, if I'm moving fast, and I will be, and I'll be reading fast, just go back and visit it yourself at, at a later time. You, you don't need me to read your Bible, and so I'm going to point to some things, and then you can go back at a later time. We're going to look at three specific scenes that we find in Scripture, specifically in the Gospels. Now, on the surface, they're going to seem unrelated, but they are not. There's a common thread running through all of them that I wanted to bring to your attention today. We're going to spend probably the most of our time in John 21, a very unique chapter, and I'll explain why. We're going to spend some time in Luke 15 which will be familiar to you. And then we're going to spend time in Luke 7. Those are our three scenes that we're going to visit today. If you like titles, today's title is, Tell Me How You Really Feel. Tell Me How You Really Feel. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that we're together this morning. We thank you for amazing worship, that you inhabit our praise. We thank you for Romans 12, 2, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And your word renews our minds. And so that's what we're asking for this morning. Change our minds to be more Christ-like, God. Let us have the mind of Christ. In the name of Jesus. About two months ago, um, unfortunately, my mom's brother passed away. And we, uh, I had to go to the funeral. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you, I, I just, I don't like funerals. Uh, it's, it's an awkward, and some of you may be saying, oh, who does? I just, it's just an awkward thing to me. They're, they're, the whole custom that we have around visitation and, and the receiving of friends, and as they're standing up there, I'm not sure that they want to be there, and I don't know that I want to be there. Of course, I want to honor the, the family and, and support them, but it's just, you know, are we, are we hugging? Are we shaking hands? Um, should I work up some tears? I don't, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
don't judge me. I, it's just it's a very awkward scenario when you go to the the I guess the Southern American version of a funeral. It's 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 awkward. And then my family, you know, when you go to a family situation, there's a whole group of of people who you haven't seen in 30 years, who you don't remember, but they remember you. And they play this this embarrassing game, literally walk up to me and say, hey, do you remember me? Well, what am I supposed to say to that? I haven't seen you in forever. Do you remember me? And I, you know, I've got a pretty good poker face. So I say, oh my gosh, how are you doing? It has been forever. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of how I deal with that. If my wife's with me, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, her job is if I don't know him, I say, have you met my wife, Becca? And then she introduces herself. You know the trick. She introduces herself, forces them to introduce themselves, and that's how we get over that moment. Uh, but she wasn't even at this funeral with me, so it was, I was lost. So anyway, we get through all the awkward parts, and we go start into the service. And I'm going to tell you how we went from distracting a funeral to absolutely interrupting a funeral. Um, most awkward situation you can imagine. So it starts, and there's a eulogy, and then there's a song, and then someone else is in their eulogy. And, and we're on the third row because we're family, and there's about 30 rows in this little room. And the second row is my mom's sister and her child and their child and a few grandchildren. And they're just young kids. And so they're like two and six, two and five. I don't remember. They're young, and it's at a funeral, and they don't know how to act. And so they're, they're acting terrible. And it starts with a little disruption, a little quiet whisper, and it goes to a little bit louder conversation. And then they're crawling over people, and then they're laughing, and then they're talking. And the parents are getting loud because they're telling them to be quiet. And it's just this second row, huge distraction. And you know it's a distraction because every now and then the speaker like kind of glances at them, tries to get their, get their attention. Well, then the second distraction happens. So I'm sitting there with my mom and my dad, and my dad's on my left, and if you know, my dad's just, he's not the most patient person in the world. Gets easily flustered. So he starts getting really frustrated because my mom's sister, because the in-laws can't control their family. And he's just going, you know, he starts with a little head shake and then he rolls his eyes and he leans over and says something to me or my mom. And, and then he's now slowly becoming a little bit of a distraction himself. And then he becomes a big distraction because he's just angry. And at some point you hear him go, <gasps> quiet. So now he's a distraction. Well, then the best part happens. So as he's feeling really judgy about this other family and how they can't control the grandkids, his grandson, my brother's kid, starts acting bad. And they're on our row. And right before my brother realizes it, grabs the kid, tries to get him out of the room, but on the way out, you hear this screech, no, daddy! You know, the record stops, everything stops. And so now my dad's mortified because he was feeling holier than thou. And now his grandkid is the worst distraction in the room. Well, then this happens. I think that's hilarious. I just think that's the funniest thing in the world. But one place you aren't supposed to laugh is at a funeral. And I know that, but I can't help it. And so I start stifling my laughter. And you know, if you don't let it out, it, it shakes your body. And so on the third row, I'm just sitting here doing this right here, laughing at him. My mom's saying, stop. And I'm, you know, it's her brother for Pete's sake. So, and I'm, and if you're behind me, it probably looks like I'm having seizures or something. And we have gone from distracting this funeral to flat out interrupting this funeral. And in our third scene today in Luke 7, we're going to see how Jesus does exactly the same thing. He distracts and then absolutely interrupts the funeral. Before that, we're going to be in John, excuse me, in Luke 15, 
And there we're gonna see how Jesus feels about things that have been lost. Before that, we're gonna spend time in John 21 and we're gonna see what Jesus thinks about failure. And so stay with me today as we look at, at all these, asking God, how do you really feel? Before we dive into John 21, I just wanna zoom out for a second on the Gospels and then we'll zoom right back into John chapter 21. Some of you biblical scholars are gonna know all this. Some of you may find it helpful. But the first four Gospels, I just wanna talk about uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John a little bit. So they are all historic narratives, meaning they're telling a story, but an actual historic narrative. They were all written about 25 to 60 years after the events they described. This tells us a little bit about why they were written, if they were written a few decades later. Let me give you some of the reasons why the Gospels were written. Number one, historical. There was a need for a faithful, accurate record of what happened. Everything handed down up to this point had been primarily verbal. And so there needed to be a faithful, accurate record. Instruction. A lot of new believers at this point are coming into the faith and they need to be taught Jesus' words and deeds. Liturgical, that just means it was a part of their normal worship service. If you were Jewish at that time, it was a very common practice for someone attending a synagogue to stand up and read scripture out loud. That was a normal part of services. And so it would, they would need in this new covenant, new God-breathed scripture to read. Encouragement. Remember, believers are still a minority and still getting persecuted at this point, and so this would give them assurance uh, to continue being faithful. Theological reasons, false teaching began to pop up almost immediately, uh, and these manuscripts would deal with that directly. Apologetic, attacks against Jesus um, and the realities of him as a Messiah were happening during his lifetime, right? So it's no surprise that those same attacks would continue after his death and resurrection. And so the idea that, 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 that all this was a myth or a legend, they wanted to deal with that very quickly. Um, and then finally, it was evangelical. I mean, these acted as they spread as a call to faith toward God. To whom were they written? Well, that's easy. To the church, right? To the church then, to the church now. Now, we do know that, that there are specific books that were written to specific bodies, like we know that Mark was written to the church at Rome. We know that Luke was written to a specific individual, Theophilus. Uh, but we also know that almost immediately there was an expectation of, broad, uh, of, of the meme broadcast out to the church and intended for the church today. Why four Gospels? Why not just one? Well, because each of the Gospels prevent a, or present a different viewpoint, a different perspective. And if you read through them, you'll see that. Why only four? Um, are these the only documents written about the life of Christ? No, they are not. But the reason that we have four in our canon and that we would call the others that are out there apocryphal, which basically means inauthentic, is because they were rejected almost immediately by the church. Why? Well, part of it was time. They were written much, much later. They were written by individuals who weren't even close to the situation. They had historical inaccuracies in them almost immediately, and no one could prove who the author was. So this idea of a gospel of Thomas, for example, was written way after the life of Thomas. And so you know right off the bat that, 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 that something's off. It just doesn't hold up under any kind of, of scrutiny. So if you are you know, watching the Da Vinci Code or think that it's some kind of you know, conspiracy to keep out uh, certain gospels, not true at all. They were rejected immediately. Who wrote the gospels that we read? The four we, we, we consider part of our canon. 
Matthew and John, well, they were both eyewitnesses, right? So they were both there in describing these events. They were amongst the 12 right off the bat. Mark, we're not sure that he was around. There's some thought that he was a teenager during the ministry of Jesus. But we do know from the book of Acts that Mark was very closely tied to Paul. And we know that he was probably even more closely tied to Peter. Common thought is that Mark's gospel is him relaying most of what Peter has told him. And so some consider Mark's gospel a version of Peter's story. Mark, you do, you do see Mark possibly at the end of his own gospel as one of these followers who flee. A lot of people think that he's describing himself. It's a bit of a cameo there. And then Luke. We have no evidence that Luke was an eyewitness. But we do know that Luke was a doctor and he was a historian and he made sure to be very accurate. Um, we know Luke's early convert because we see him all through the book of Acts. Um, but we look at, at his opening and he mentions the eyewitness accounts that he looks at. And he says this, after careful investigation of everything from the beginning. So Luke is an accurate historian. So he's kind of that outside perspective that goes through and investigates and puts it down as a historical document. And you see a lot of that in Luke because he, he mentions specific people in power and certain dates. He's trying to be very careful and accurate. I mention all this for one reason. Well, two. I think it's interesting. Uh, but the second reason is this. There's so much disinformation out there. It's unbelievable. I mean, it, the bad information will pop up at the top of your Google search if you look at the Gospels. And so you owe it to yourself to understand the background and the history and the truth of the matter because all the bad information looks very authentic. And so you need to know, hey, this smells funny. This doesn't look right. So you need to understand. Zooming in further, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospel. Synoptic is from the Greek word synopsis, which basically means viewed together. Uh, they are not the same, but they do have a lot of overlap in them. Very similar stories in their historical narratives. John, where we're going to spend some time today, his gospel stands apart. Um, it's very unique content. In fact, 90% of what you see in the Gospel of John is only found in the Gospel of John, not in the other three. So I think it's very interesting. You'll, you'll also feel the tone of John's Gospel different than the other three. It's very heavy on theology. Right from the beginning, he makes it clear that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus reveals the Father, and that it's Jesus that provides eternal life to all who believe. John doesn't mince words, and he starts it in John 1.1, in the beginning. And so he's very clear about that. And then he shows, he's, he shows this proof that Jesus is Messiah and God in a couple of different ways. Number one, his works. John selects seven different miracles for seven very specific purposes that he shares in his gospel. And his words, John selects seven I am statements that you don't see in the other gospels. And so it's very clear what he's doing. These I am statements, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Jesus isn't hiding who he is here. And John wants to make that really clear, his claims. And so I love John's gospel because of that. But I also love it for one other reason. Just when you think it's over, there's more. Let me show you. John 20, 30. What is the end, we think, of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Like I said, John only recorded seven. 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
the end. Well, not quite. That's the end of, of the book, but John has an epilogue. And there's really no other book like that in the Bible where there's actually an epilogue. Now, what is an epilogue? Well, it's kind of the rest of the story, if anyone's old like me and knows Paul Harvey. It's, it's, it's a little bit more of the story. It allows us to look back on the story or maybe the characters or it gives us something unique, but it also helps us look forward. Marvel movies was famous for this, right? So Marvel movies started introducing these mid and post-credit scenes into the end of their movies. And so for the first time ever, you have, if you go to a Marvel movie, you are sitting through the credits because you want to get to the epilogue because it's going to show you something about a character you care about and it's going to give you a hint about some of the future and where we're going from here. And that's exactly what John's epilogue does. So jump in with me and just know this. John's epilogue is divided into two parts, and it makes a lot of sense. There's looking back, a looking back part up to verse 14, and then after a looking forward part. So John, and this is where I read fast, John 1, or excuse me, John 21.1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from, uh, from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going I'm to go out and fish, is, is what Simon Peter says. So he told them, and they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. That should sound familiar. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. They're about 100 yards away, which is, we'll see in a second. He called out to them, friends, haven't you got any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. That should sound familiar. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. That should sound familiar. When the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. That should sound familiar. The other disciples followed in the boat towing a net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And that should sound familiar. Jesus said to them, bring some fish so you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. I just, as an aside, find that so interesting that it's not a bunch of fish. It's not a net full of fish. It's 153 fish. Which, another interesting thing, it tells us Peter was a pretty strong dude. A uh, fish back then would have been around one and a quarter to one and a half pounds where they were fishing. So 153 of them, now we're approaching 300 pounds. He's, he's, not, he's not a weakling. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. Uh, that should sound familiar. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I like to call this first section of, of John's epilogue, The Last Breakfast. Um, a lot of us are familiar with The Last Supper, the painting, The Last Supper. But this is The Last Breakfast, and I just find it wonderful what Jesus does for them here. And I want to unpack that just for a moment. He, he, he forces their minds to look back, and he forces our minds to look back over the last three years of this ministry. Before we do that, just a couple thoughts that jumped out at me. Number one, I just, I love the personality of Jesus here. I love the way he comes on the scene. Now remember where we are in the timeline. Jesus has died. Jesus is resurrected. He is the king. He's proven he's not only man, but God. 
And yet, instead of, you know, angels and trumpets and all that when he comes on the scene, he just kind of walks up to the lakeside, just starts cooking, just starts serving. Shouldn't surprise us, right? Because the king who should have been on a throne was willing to be in a manger when he first came on the scene. It's the heart of Jesus. Number two, I love the way he chooses to spend time here at the very end. Instead of setting up his political party or strategizing over where we're going from here, he's just hanging out with his people. He's just hanging out with his guys. Relationships matter to Jesus. Always have, always will. But I love the way he helps them reflect. And let me go back and call out a couple of examples. Verse five, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Doesn't that sound exactly what had happened three years earlier? Exactly when he first found them, exactly when he first called them. Many, many historians think he was standing exactly where he was standing and they were fishing exactly where they were fishing. And he did it on purpose. When he would say, hey, throw your nets over on the other side and the miracle would happen. And he said, hey, from now on, guys, you're not gonna be fishing for fish. Verse seven, then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, it's the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, jumped in the water. Peter's got a habit of getting out of boats at this point, (laughs) right? I mean, they must have watched Peter jump out of this boat and been thinking, oh my gosh, do you remember back when that storm was going on and Jesus was walking on water and and he said, come out, Peter. And And Peter said, if it's you, tell me to come out. And he said, come on, baby. And Peter's walking on water for a moment. They must have thought back to that. And here, Peter's doing it again to get to that same Jesus. In this final meal together, um, I assume they were all thinking back to the times they broke bread with Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus says, come and have breakfast. And, and, And they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came in verse 13, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Surely, Surely they must remember as they watched this fish and bread finish cooking the times when Jesus took just a little bit of fish and just a little bit of bread and fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. What a sweet way he has them look back on some of these times. All the miracles, all the teachings, all the parables, the times by the lakeside, the times by the, the, the mountain where, where they had seen Jesus reveal who he is. Such a, it's, a, it's a sweet moment in the first part of this epilogue. But then we get to part two. And it's a little different because now it's time to look forward. Uh, As they're eating breakfast, they're standing around this charcoal fire. And I think that charcoal fire piece is there on purpose. There's only one other time in the New Testament a charcoal fire is mentioned. And it involves the exact same guy. Jesus built this fire with great intention because it's Peter who's at this fire and Peter was at the other fire. You see, the first charcoal fire that, that we read about in Peter is at near the end of Jesus' life. And they had just had a conversation when Jesus said, hey, when they come get me, you guys are, you guys are gonna deny me. You guys are gonna flee. And Peter's like, no way. They might, but not me. I'm your guy. I'm your man. And sure enough, standing around a charcoal fire, not once, not twice, but three times, three separate people said, do you know him? And Peter said, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. So I imagine the first charcoal fire we read about was probably about the lowest point in Peter's life. And here we are, Jesus building this charcoal fire, brings Peter in, and in verse 15 says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. And he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Second time, he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
Third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think sometimes this section of scripture is misapplied what Jesus is really doing here. What's happening here is Jesus is as clear as he can communicating exactly what happens when we fail him. This is what happens. I think Jesus has this fire built on purpose. I think he's asking Peter the same question three times on purpose. Why? Because the last time Peter was at a fire, he was asked three times and he blew it three times. Each question Jesus is asking is giving Peter another chance to get it right. And a future once he does. You messed up the first time. Now let's get it right and feed my sheep. In other words, you're still with me. You still have a destiny. You still have a future. You blew it. How about now? For every time, and I wrote this down, for every time Peter put one in the lost column around the first fire, Jesus makes sure he gets one in the win column at the second, at the second fire. It's a powerful moment. I believe, and this is just me, I think if Peter had denied Jesus five times, Jesus would have asked him five times. This restoration process is so important. Here's the point. You've heard it said God is a God of second chances. No, he's not. No, he's not. God's a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and sixth chances. However many chances you need. He takes your loss and puts it in the wind column. And I love him for that. So that's our scene over here around a charcoal fire. Let's move on. We'll come back. But let's move on to Luke 15 because now we're going to, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, a hillside. We don't know for sure. But Jesus is doing a little teaching now at a different point in his ministry, an earlier point in his ministry. And he's got sinners and tax collectors, the worst of society. And he's got, quote, unquote, the best of society, the righteous, the teachers of the law here. So Luke 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They couldn't stand the way Jesus hung out with the lowest of the low, the lost. So Jesus wanted to drive a point home, and he gives here a trilogy of parables to do just that. So verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he does find it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, underline this, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's story one. Let me give you another, Jesus said. Or... Verse 8, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? I love the act, active finding that's going on here. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love the in the same way because Jesus is saying, This isn't just me, this is the way heaven feels about lost things. This is the way God the Father feels about lost things. And then the third story, everybody knows the lost son, the prodigal, but a lot of us think it's this standalone parable. It's just the third part in a trilogy. A man had two sons, and let me paraphrase a little bit. Young man takes his inheritance, goes off, wild living. You've heard the old phrase, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. He did. And so he runs out of money. He's lost his way. He's, he's now eating with the pigs in the pig slop. Right? He's living, and, and many of us can say, I remember the times I was with the pigs. 
So he was in the pigs. Finally, he comes to his senses, verse 17 says. He, he creates this speech. I'm gonna go to him. His servants are better off than me. Forget sonship. I'm gonna go to him and just be a servant. So he, he, he's there. And then we get to verse 20, or he's on his way back. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, this is big, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Verse uh, 21, the son starts his servant speech. Mm -mm. Verse 22, father cuts him off, says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate it. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. What, what does God really feel? How does God really feel about the lost? I think Jesus makes it clear, one, two, three, to drive his point home. It should not surprise us that the heart of restoration we saw over here at the charcoal fire that, that Jesus shows Peter, is he's already made it clear that this is how the God of heaven is. This is how God views lost things. Let's wrap up with our third scene, Luke 7, verse 11. This is where Jesus uh, interrupts a funeral even worse than I did. And he starts by distracting. So Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd were along with him. So there's a big parade of people following Jesus. I assume in a pretty good mood, pretty happy. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And so think of the scene on a dusty street. And we're coming up to a gate of a little town called Nain. Whole parade of people following Jesus. Whole procession of people following this lady. So right off the bat... I'm pretty sure Jesus distracts at this funeral. But then he interrupts it this way. Verse 14, then he went up and touched the bier which they were carrying him on. That's basically a mat or a platform they would carry a body on. And the bears stood still. The pallbearers stopped. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. What happens when a funeral procession meets a parade? Because that's what we have here. What happens when the things that uh, we think are dead or dying encounter a Savior that defeats death? What happened? Let me, let me tie these scenes together with just a couple thoughts. We, we, we first spent time at the charcoal fire, and Peter realizes that his failure isn't final, and his failure doesn't define his future. Then we spent time in Luke 15 where Jesus is telling the sinners and the religious leaders alike that lost things and lost people matter to God. And when they're found, celebration happens. And then we spent time at the final scene where a funeral procession meets a parade and the whole dang thing became a party because he brings this kid back to life because death is no match when Jesus gets on the scene. Those are the scenes we visited. Now I want to mention the fourth scene, if you would. Your scene. What does your scene look like this morning? If you're being honest with yourself, and if you're being honest with God, what do the scenes in your life look like right now? I would ask you to be serious and consider the areas where you feel like you've been a failure, where you feel like you've disappointed God or others. I would ask you to consider the things you've lost or the people you feel like are lost or maybe have lost their way. 
I would ask you to consider the things that you think are dead or dying, the, the, the relationships, the dreams, the ideas, the opportunity, maybe even your hope you feel like is dead or dying, and, and sit in your scene for just a moment. Now, these are oftentimes pretty heavy things to consider, but as you're there and as you're reflecting on your scene, I want you to understand and ask God, God, how do you really feel? about it. And I think we've gotten some answers from the word today. How does God really feel about you when you fail him or fail others? He's not angry. We find he's not looking to make you pay. We find that he loves you and we find that his heart is restoration. How does God really feel about the people that are lost or or just have lost their way? Turns out He would do anything to find you. Turns out he's already done everything to find you, even to death on a cross, to find things that are lost. And he celebrates when lost things are found. And what really happens when we thought, what we thought was dead or dying encounters Jesus? Well, Jesus defeated death. And and, and quite frankly, death has no sting. Jesus has a habit of bringing dead things to life. Now, listen, that can be your marriage that can be a relationship with someone you love, a parent, a kid. That can, that can be a, a wayward loved one. Uh, that can be a promise he's spoken in your life that just looks like it's dying, that Jesus can bring life to just like that. When Jesus comes on the scene, and I wrote these down, the future you thought was gone can be found, just like Peter. The people you thought were lost can be found. That may even be you even. And what you thought was dead or dying, life can be found. So what do we do with these truths? So I spent three different uh, moments and three different scenes to give you a sense of what God's heart really is and answer the question of how do you really feel? So how do we take this with us in the next couple minutes? If you're a note taker, number one, get in the word. Get in the word. You'll never know what God is saying if you have no idea what he said. You'll never have any idea what God is doing if you have no idea what he's done. You've got to spend a little bit of time in the word. And listen, I don't care if that's one minute a day to start with. Do it. Maybe it's five minutes. Do it. Spend some time in the word today. It will change. Listen, I wrote this down in the first service. It will change the way you worship. If you're at this church, you don't know it maybe, but you're singing scripture all day long. I love our worship team because we sing solid doctrine here, accurate doctrine, doctrine here. And there'll be times when, when you will sing something, you'll be like, oh my gosh, I just read that. And it'll change the way you worship in that moment. We have to live life through the lens of scripture. And oftentimes we, 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 let, we read scripture through the lens of our circumstances. Let me tell you what I mean. You're, Thomas Jefferson was famous at this. He would read his Bible, and then if he came across something he didn't like, he would take a little razor and just cut it out. What was left over was the Jefferson Bible. What was left over it was, was the God he could understand, right? So now the created thinks he knows more than the creator. Don't do that. Don't read the Bible through the lens of your own circumstances and your own understanding. Submit your understanding to the lens of God's word. It'll change everything. Number two. Trust God, not me. 
This is related to what I just said. Trust God, not me. We have to change our minds. The world lies to us about how God really feels. The enemy lies to us about how God really feels. And worst off, we lie to us about God, how God really feels. And we make up a story and it's oftentimes so far off, off base. You are oftentimes your biggest obstacle and the stories you tell yourself are your biggest obstacle. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. It's not just trusting God, but understanding you don't get it sometimes. Trust, trust God. This means all the way, not halfway. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Number three, pray, but pray differently. So many times we are praying like we have no idea what God's done for us and like we have no idea who his character is. Let me give you an example. You ever found yourself praying, God, please love me today. God, please be with me today. I have. Well, the Bible tells me he loves me. In fact, there's a thousand examples I can give you where he's proven he loves you. There's a thousand examples I can give you where he's proven he will be with you. In fact, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And we're praying like we've never read that. Try this on instead. God, thank you for loving me today. God, thank you for be with, being with me today and never leaving me. God, thank you that lost things matter to you. God, thank you that my failures don't define my future. God, thank you that when you get on the, thing, on the scene, the things I thought were dead can come alive. God, thank you for that. The Bible should change the way you pray. Pray, but pray differently. And finally, community, and I'm out of time. You've got to get around people. You have to let people into your lives. I had a situation going on in this last week where I was at my men's group on Friday morning. Uh, so I was at my men's group on Friday morning and I cannot tell you the impact they had on my life where I was seeing things one way, partially right, but I was also letting fear and doubt have its way with me in a large way and, and anger and all this crap. And, and I mean, 14 guys <laughs> redirected my mind in line with the scripture like you would not believe. Uh, it was a life-changing moment. Um, thank you if you're in this room. And if you don't have people around your life, make it happen today. Go sign up for a connect group today. And, and by the way, don't just sign up. You gotta show up, right? There were years of sowing into, the, into, this, into these guys where I got to reap the fruit um, this last Friday. It was, it was amazing. Let's pray. I would like everyone just to close your eyes, bow your heads as we wrap up. I ask you if we could visit your scene a few minutes ago. And, and I'd ask you if, if you were to view this scene in life, uh, are there areas where you've experienced failure or disappointment? Are there areas where you've lost your way or, or someone you love very much has, has lost their way? Or are there areas in your life where something is, is, is dying, it feels like, whether that be a, a marriage, a relationship that matters to you, a career opportunity. It could be anything that you feel like that thing's dying. And you need God to show up in that situation. Everyone, please close your eyes and bow your head. But if that's you and any one of, that, any one of those things rings true to you, raise your hand for me real quick. Yeah, all across the room, all across the room. You raising your hand doesn't mean I can fix anything for you, but what it does mean is you're inviting God onto your scene. And we know what happens when those things encounter Jesus. Now, if you're right off the bat, you're feeling cynical, 
you would say, oh, I've invited God to this scene before. I would tell you right now as encouragement, two different individuals this week were telling their story to me about a relationship that had been broken for decades and there was no hope and no light and that thing was dead or dying and bam, God brings it right back. God restores it. Invite God onto your scene again today. Number two, there may be some of you here who are nowhere near God. Or, or at least you haven't been in a while. And if you'd say, hey, if, if that's who God is, and if that's what he's like, and if that's what he really feels about me in my situation, well then, I want that. The Bible says you can have a, a, a clean slate, a fresh start. No one's looking, and I'm not calling you up, but you raise your hand if that's you. So if that's who God is, and that's how he really feels, I want that. I want that, God. I see that hand. I see that hand. Awesome. Thanks for your boldness. I see that hand. In the last few minutes, just, just pray with me, guys. People giving their life to Jesus today. The only thing that changes anything. All you've got to give him is your heart. Good news is that's all he wants. God, we thank you this morning. We accept that we cannot do it ourselves, that we blow it and we fail, and we accept that you bring us back anyway, that you restore us. We believe that you are the son of God and we believe you are the only answer. And because of that, God, we surrender our lives and we commit to following you. You guide our steps, you order our steps, and we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to another Transformation Church sermon podcast. If you would like someone to pray with you, or if you would like some ministry materials, please email us at hello at transformationchurch.us.